Dispatching from Block Island, this is Allison Morfold, the Director of the Wellness and Risk Reduction Program at the Block Island Medical Center, and Kristen Bauman, Director of the Island Free Library. This is Wake Up Well, a community conversation around wellness in the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Thanks for joining us. If, if a movement really can come together that can accept and use all different kinds of contributions from all different kinds of people, that's really an unstoppable movement. Welcome back to Wake Up Well. Allison and I took a small break last week. We were regrouping and replanning and rethinking what our mission and our role and our goals were with Wake Up Well. And part of that came from a, a real surge in activism in our country. And that led us on a path of who can we talk to and, and how can we make a difference with what's going on right now. And we're so fortunate to have two great activists right here on Block Island. And there's probably more great activists out on Block Island. But these two really stand out for me. I'm happy to introduce them to Allison and to all our listeners. We're welcoming Peter Kanoy and Mary Lutz to Wake Up Well today. Thanks, you guys, for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Um, Peter and Mary, if you could tell our listeners and tell Allison a little bit about what you do for your career. I have spent my life trying to put together art and politics, my two big loves. And when I was in my mid-twenties, they finally came together um, when I was an apprentice film editor and began to learn that craft. And I've spent um, many decades now working on political documentaries. So that was, that was my, always my work career. Most of my life has been spent on one side or the other of a desk. And um, I uh, was fortunate enough to get a really good education and uh, used that uh, kind of as my base of operation for a long time. Uh, the wonderful thing about it was that I chose uh, to take that incredible education and devote it to working class students, uh, mostly adult students, uh, in their evening classes for City College. Uh, these were largely students who had, um, for one reason or another, a lot of times uh, having a baby or something like that, uh, had an interrupted education, but were very ambitious, very smart, wanted to finish their educations, and were able to uh, squeeze together time between work and family uh, to get that education in the evening. So that was the population that I devoted a tremendous amount of my um, paid time to. I also did a lot of research for 25 years uh, in various branches of the social and health sciences. So I had uh, a lot of work on my plate, but I think that uh, it prepared me, hopefully, for uh, an active retirement. Uh, although I've been 
helping develop demonstrations uh, since the 1960s. So <laughs> I'm kind of like those working class women that I uh, devoted my life uh, to in teaching. So that's kind of the gist of my career, if you can call it a career. And, and what brings you guys to Block Island? Why do you, why do you live here? Well, in the 1940s, my mom sailed as crew on a sailboat up here and saw the island for the first time. And it stuck with her. And then as young parents, um, they would bring me and my sister over here. And this would then be in the early 1950s. And we would come over and stay at the Ocean View Hotel. And that was the cheapest place on the island that you could stay. And then, you know, when they got a little bit more money, we would stay at the Narragansett. And then, oh my God, we got to stay at the Spring House and we got to climb <laughs> on the wonderful bronze animals on the big lawn there at the Spring House. It was so terrific. Anyway, it was a long time. And then, you know, they would go around with Dorothy Sullivan, you know, and look at houses just on a lark, kind of, you know, this was something to do when they were on the island. And uh, they made a bid on some houses, but at that time there was a certain amount of anti-Semitism on the island. And that we weren't able to buy until 1963. And they bought a little non-winterized summer shack <laughs> um, out on Corneck Road. And, and so we've summered here, you know, pretty much since 1960, 63. And then Mary and I met, and of course, immediately I brought Mary to the island because, you know, this was the, the island was the geographic love of my life. And so why wouldn't I want to bring the physical love of my life to the island? And so that was her introduction. And how did you guys meet? Well, let me make one slight correction. <laughs> really, we're only a few minutes in here. <laughs> yeah. he, he did not bring me here immediately. It was four years later wow. uh, after we met that he brought me to the island. Um, and it was a chance for me to get to know his mother. So uh, it, it, things were developing over that period of time and uh, we were trying to decide about having a kid and all of those kinds of things. So, um, you know, it did take, it wasn't immediate, but I fell in love with Block Island right away. And it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time for us. What's not to love? <laughs> well, I know Allison has a question hanging there, but before we get to that, I wanna say that I, I think that that's risky. Sometimes people don't get Block Island. Sometimes you bring a love here or a partner or, and they don't get it. And that really changes the light on your own relationship. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or even just with friends, with company, um, or maybe your kids' friends and their company. But I have had that where they like, no, I don't get this place. And you're like, well, well this relationship is over. <laughs> well, Right? You don't we get Block Island? We have had that experience. Um, I share this house with my sister, who I love very dearly, and we have a great relationship. But her spouse 
does not like Block Island at all. Ah, there you have it. And, and so um, she often comes solo to the, to the island. So uh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. No, to each their own. To each their own. So take me back to how you guys met. This is a New York City story. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was living with a partner and Mary was living with another partner. And our respective partners loved doing the New York Sunday Times crossword puzzle together. And Mary and I had very little interest in doing that. So we would go out together to get the Sunday morning bagels. And then the rest is history. Wow, that is very, that's like dripping with New Yorkisms. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love that. <laughs> so yeah. it, it seems like you guys share uh, more than bagels, though, as time goes on. It seems like you, um, you share sort of a moral compass, so to speak. You have a lot in common in terms of what you're passionate about. We come from extremely different backgrounds. You know, I'm a third generation New Yorker. My grandparents grew up in that city. And Mary comes from a small town in Northern Texas. And so the, the possibilities of us getting together seemed like very, very remote. And, and yet we, we did find over the, over the years that we have a tremendous amount in common in terms of just a, a lust for, for life in, in all of its different aspects. And, you know, that, that, has, that has like propelled our relationship for how many years now? Oh my gosh, 44 years next week. Next week, it'll be 44 years. So, in, and, and it, through raising four boys and all the trials and tribulations that go with life on earth, and well, maybe not all of them, but, but you know, you live and you experience things. And the, if, if you work things out with your partner, then you both become stronger for it. And I think that's kind of what's happened with, with Mary and myself. I love Very that. Very silent there, Mary. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about what you said, the, the lust for life. I think the emphasis was on lust at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and bagels. Lust and bagels. <laughs> and bagels. Yes. I, um, I love that. And happy anniversary to both of you. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, that's, that's quite the accomplishment and quite a beautiful story. And I, I think that there, it's, I believe you that there was lust and lust for life, but I find that there is a, I, when thinking about starting to interview you, you know, these past few days, I was thinking, I find it very interesting that you have a common thread of social justice and really I see them as opposite approaches. Art and and Mary, I would say your your data. Well, yes, I think yeah, I think that I take a um, you know a social sciences uh, type of approach to things. 
some of it's experimental, but a lot of it is, you know, just data. Data, yeah. And, but yet you have the same vision and, or maybe not the same exact vision, right? But you see a, you see a better world for people. I think that's true. I think that, you know, um, a lot of, for us together as a couple, I think that uh, we're still developing uh, in terms of uh, that moral compass. I think we're still developing in terms of the political consciousness. I don't think that stops. I think once you get on that track, um, there's a tendency uh, for going forward uh, that maintains itself uh, in a way because of a building a community of people that you uh, trust and that you're working with. Yeah, and so you said you were organizing demonstrations early on. I think Peter referenced the 1960s already. And here we are tonight with a demonstration tonight happening on Block Island. I'm curious how you feel about that. Is this a community that you can see making a difference? Have, has Block Island made, had, had other actions that you've been proud of? I think that the one of the first um, demonstrations that I knew about was the silent vigil on Wednesdays that Martha Wilson and um, others, the Smiths, had uh, started and uh, continued over many years um, to uh, protest war. And I think that that uh, spirit is very different on Block Island because it has a kind of a Quaker root in it. And the uh, impetus uh, for the demonstration uh, that we're having today that, that uh, uh, people organized, we were not the organizers, we were just the joiners uh, mm -hmm. last week, was uh, done in that spirit to have a silent march, which I thought was very successful. I think I have a lot of hope um, for the young people on this island, a lot of uh, the energy for that was uh, from when you say young people, well, everybody's younger than we are, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. This is, this, Not quite. This is, That's right. This but, is what, what do they call this place, a NORC? Yeah, Nationally Occurring Retirement Community. Yeah. Correct. So. <laughs> Wait. We don't know that word. Allison, do you know well, that word? Not a, I do not know a, that word. It's not an official designation, but it could be. It could yeah. be because it's got the right ratio of older people. So it could right. be. Declare that. And actually, Allison, you can get some more funding if it gets through the application process. That's right. Yep. So I think what you've touched on uh, in just that story, kind of talking about the march that's happening tonight and happened last week and also the silent vigil is like when I think of Block Island, I do think of the fact that it has some social justice roots or at the very least sort of attracts a certain, a type of person here. Um, maybe, maybe more than other places, maybe not, but my experience has been that a, a socially conscious person, type of person tends to live here. And also, um, I think people who are able to think about a society that looks a little bit different, maybe, or is aren't afraid to sort of live, to, uh, live somewhere that might, be fringe-like sometimes. Do you guys think that's a fair assessment? I, I, I'd like to, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that um, the little uh, pamphlet, The Real Mystery of Block Island by Arthur Knoy Peter Stad, um, that's on sale at the Historical Society, 
is uh, a, an example of that, that uh, the island attracted free thinkers mm -hmm. and uh, people who were kind of iconoclastic in a way because they, uh, they wanted to start something new. Yeah. And I, 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 have, I think that spirit is maintained, even though generations and generations have uh, gone uh, through the island, I think it still has some of that capacity uh, to draw on energetic, innovative people. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a, a very short little story, Allison, that, that for me was one of the things, a couple of things really opened my eyes to life on, on Block Island. And as I say, we were here as summer people. And so there was always some distance um, that, that um, but between people who lived here and, and suffered the hardships, the economic and physical hardships of living through winters on Block Island, and then people who just came in the, in the summertime. The first thing was, one summer, we had rented um, a house very near where um, Jimmy Mitchell lived. Now, Jimmy was exactly my age, and we became good summer friends. And, and he would always come over. We rented from, his, um, from Marie Dodge, and she had a house called the Frog House. So we, one day he didn't come, and then the next day he still didn't come, and I was worried, and I was wondering, well, I wonder what happened to Jimmy. And, and I had never been over to his house, and I walked over, I walked down Mitchell Lane, because we were right across the street from there, and, and walked to his house, and I stopped in my tracks. I felt I was, I was now like 10 years old, and I thought I was walking into a Dorothea Lange photograph from the Depression eras of the 1930s, you know? the rusted cars in the yard. And then I went into, into the house, a low old island house with wallpaper made out of newspaper and mattresses right on the floor. And this was my first real experience with island poverty. And it was not something that most people got to see and got to understand. And, and I suddenly realized at 10 years old, there was this other island. The other thing that happened is flash forward to 1964. Um, and my mother and I are in this new little house. It wasn't new, we bought it already, but this kind of summer house out on the neck. It's nighttime. As we were driving up that, that night um, for, for the weekend, for a prolonged stay, I can't remember, we heard on the radio that my father had been arrested at a HUAC hearing in Washington, D.C., and hauled out of that hearing by marshals for too strenuously defending two clients, Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, who were self-pronounced yippies from, from that era. And suddenly the cover was blown. This was on the national news. And my father and mother, 
who knew a lot of people on the island, but they knew them as, you know, they would have poker games together or go fishing together or socially do things together, but no mention of politics. And suddenly we were outed by this event. And so we were there at night in the house. We didn't know how, what kind of reception we were gonna get on the island because of this. And uh, uh, a truck drives up into the driveway, very dark, and it starts driving around the house, driving around the house. And my mother and I, who were there by ourselves, think, oh my God, what is gonna happen? What's going on? And then finally the truck stops and the door opens and there's Bill Ball, who we knew because he did the plumbing work on our house. And, and you know, clearly he had had a little fortification in order to get up his nerve to come and see us, which I think explained why the Jeep drove around the house a few times. But he, he stands there and he says, Mrs. Kanoy, we heard about your husband. And we just want to tell you, we were talking some of us together. We think he's really, really great and did the right thing. And so we're glad to know you all. And so, you know, of course, we breathed a big sigh of relief, but this was our introduction sort of to an island where people don't always tell you exactly what they think about everything, and you might not discuss everything, but that there's certain values, and deep human values, that, that are evident here. And, and that is part of what has endeared me to the place. I think that's a really awesome story. You know, both of those really bring a lot of sort of richness of, the, of a certain time period here that I think we still, there's characteristics that carry forth through today. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is we still live in a place that is sort of, we're approached by this dichotomy all the time of the summer island or the, you know, the summer population or the summer perspective, and then the winter island, which previously was a very impoverished population and though we still struggle with with some of that um definitely i think that story brings that out really nicely um and then also our history of of being a place of relative shelter for people in one way or another well my parents certainly knew the berrigans when 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 i was coming up you know and and they knew stringfellow um, I didn't know them all that well as a, as a kid. Later on, I just knew them from afar, sort of, you know, in admiration um, as I became active in the, in, the, in the peace movement. But Mary and I had the wonderful time of when um, the Berrigan Cottage was up for renovation. Um, your, your uncle came and got us and, and took us over there. And the place was filled from floor to ceiling with books. It was so amazing. And a certain amount of them, I think, Kristen, had gone to, to the library. But the rest were going to get thrown out. And so we, we, we just couldn't see that happening. So we, uh, 
got our car loaded up, pulled down the back seat, filled up the trunk, got as many books as we thought that we could hold and still be able to drive the car down that road and <laughs> took it to Union Theological Seminary where they now have um, a good supply of the uh, Berrigan books that were so eclectic and all over, as Kristen probably could attest, they were all over the map in terms of subject matter, in terms of uh, publishing type. It was not just theology and poetry. It was a tremendous span of reading that he had done in different languages. So it was quite a, quite a haul for the Union Theological uh, Seminary to get the, um, the Berrigan uh, legacy in that way. And do you remember finding the letter in, in one of the oh, books? Oh, yes. You tell me. Well, I don't remember that, that clearly, but it was just such a surprise. We opened it up and, and Dan had saved a letter that somebody had written to the woman had written yeah. from Mexico. I think she wrote to him or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and it was a very like moving letter about her being inspired by him and that sort of thing. But it's been just there. And was, very personal, you know, yeah. describing her struggle and stuff. It was really quite a, it really felt like touching you, the person a little bit, right? Yeah, and you felt that he had touched her. He had know, touched her and he had touched that letter. letter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of nice. I love it when I find a book in the sh on the shelves here that is from that collection. Um, mm -hmm. either, either written by them or was theirs, you know, there, there's usually some sort of a book plate that um, marks that. And that, that is a treat to hold that and to read that and to, and to have that treasure and, and to, lots of those treasures in this building. I would also, as long as we were sort of on the nostalgia tip for a minute to call out one name, that of a person on Block Island who had a huge influence on me. You know, one of the, you know, ancestors that I think about, you know, in terms of standing on their shoulders and, and being who I am because of them, and that's Herb Fisher. And, and for the, many of your listeners probably know who um, Herb was, um, but he, he lived, um, basically as a hermit um, on um, Payne Farm, in the old, um, old farmhouse there, totally off the grid. He was the first one that I ever knew to, to use solar power. Um, he powered a car battery that he found at the dump to run his radio so he could listen to NPR and rant every morning <laughs> about the state of affairs in the world. Um, and he was an inventor and an artist. He made a huge kite um, out of a sailfish sail that he scavenged from the dump where he got almost all of his things. And he also scavenged a, one of those block and tackles from the back of a fishing boat that they used to haul in the tarpaulins, you know, when they um, catch them. Um, and so he had this very heavy line attached to this gigantic kite, and he would put it up hundreds of feet from his house until the airport made him take it down because <laughs> it was a hazard to incoming aircraft. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, and I remember that wonderful outdoor shower that he made 
from a telephone booth that he got uh, when they converted the telephones, the public telephones uh, to freestanding ones. And he took this glass uh, telephone booth and turned it into his outdoor shower with solar heated water. (laughs) (laughs) It was was just marvelous. Yeah. Yeah. So I, when I think back on those things and, and go down that road of nostalgia, I, I know that that was what attracted part of what attracted me to Block Island, part of why I was comfortable here, part of why I, I, was, I wanted to live here and experience more of the island. And I wonder who those people are today. And I wonder what young generations are seeing today. And, and maybe it's us, but I, I don't feel as radical as Herb Fisher. And I'm not, right? Not quite. Um, and so I, I wonder if we're losing that or, or, or if we're maintaining it or if it's just different. I'm not sure. Well, I'd give a shout out to my friend Gruff Lyon, who I feel, you know, is, is walking barefoot, of course, um, on a very like, iconoclastic path. You know, he, he, he ran the pirate radio station for a couple of years out here, a very free spirit, used to build those great forts, um, beach forts out of, out of driftwood. Um, one year, a couple of years ago, we had a battle to keep one of those, you know, up and being um, kept from being torn down by the, by the town. But I think those spirits are still out here. Oh, good. But you know, Peter, I think there's still a lot of room on the island um, for public art, for uh, performance, for all kinds of creative talents to be expressed and uh, to do that um, in a way that people can enjoy and appreciate it uh, without being a commissioned piece or something that has to have some uh, official approval before the expression is made. I think there's tremendous amount of room for that. Well, there's certainly the, the tiny example in, in the painted rock and, oh, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful things that take, take place on that painted yeah. rock. And it was, it was great to see the various expressions of the Black Lives Matter movement that popped up um, on, the island, on the island over the last couple of weeks, the, the hands painted on the rock and the various banners. You know, I, I had never seen anything like the outpouring of 200 people last Thursday um, at, at the, at the um, Historical Society and the march through, through town. I mean, Mary and I have been at those vigils year after year where there may be 20 people if we're really lucky, and all of those people are over 60 years old. And, and suddenly, um, you know, there's this 200 people the vast majority of which were 30 years old and un- younger. And, and it's just an amazing thing to see that there is this feeling that we're part of a change and people want to be part of a change. I think we saw some of that um, incipient change with regard to the um, work around immigration. You know, you could feel that there was a, a strong agreement uh, with people passing by, honking horns, waving, and so on, when we were uh, conducting that. 
um, at the Estes Park on Water Street. I think that that, to me, it felt very hopeful. Mary, can you talk a little bit about if this is true for you or, or where you see this, but where's the intersection between data and activism for you? <laughs> you a chicken and egg? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that uh, for me at the beginning, it was the intersection of what I had read um, about what was happening in the world and uh, what I was seeing around me. Um, not that, that what I was seeing around me was reflected in what I was seeing in the press, but I saw more possibilities in the outside world than I did where I was living in Texas. And I felt that um, I needed, really needed for my own sanity and growth to um, find out what was happening in the rest of the world. And I guess I always had kind of an adventurous spirit, but it was um, reading and finding out what had occurred, uh, not just in terms of history, but in terms of current events uh, that uh, spurred me. So I think that the cognitive part of this is really strong. And then there's the emotional part of identifying with uh, people who are oppressed and seeing, uh, you know, that oppression in my own experience. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and also I'm reminded of when you, you talk about seeing things and, and sort of trying to quantify it, that data can help us do that um, right up front, quantify a problem that you see. And then since we sort of live in a world that demands a certain amount of bureaucracy, being able to take that data and translate it into something that can help a large group of people is also can be very powerful and maybe not the type of activism that people imagine when they think about activism, but definitely something that can be harnessed when we well it's a defensive position in my part <laughs> you know um because when I, I i see people doubting or i see people you know myself wondering oh maybe i'm wrong you know um i follow that statistical principle of when in doubt count right and how how do you make decisions about things you can't make a decision just based on your own gut instinct, because we can be very wrong as individuals. Sometimes we have to move very quickly and have to go with that sense, but, but it's, it's so much more productive if you can aggregate some kind of understanding of what's going on. And when you were talking, Allison, or maybe when Mary was talking, it reminded me of this idea that in order to change a very large problem or tackle a large problem, like even if you thought about the problem of how the coming recession or depression will affect people here on the island, the, you know, everybody might have their own initial individual response to a situation like that. But the way to craft some kind of forward motion to be able to tackle that kind of social problem demands a more social response. And that's either the aggregation of data, like Mary does, 
or it's people getting together and pooling their insights and their understanding and arriving at some common understanding of how to move how to move forward yeah that's a great point and you know i think right now as you're alluding to people are confronted with a variety of problems that seem so huge do you have do you either of you have sort of advice that you would give to people who are almost drowning in the feeling of, of powerlessness at this point um, and, and want to do something? Well, I think the first question to be asked is why do I feel this way? What is, why, why am I feeling this way? What's causing me to feel this way? What's, you know, where did this come from? How did it start? And, um, once you start asking that question of yourself and then asking other people uh, and finding what the commonalities are in that answer that's given, then you have a, then you have a little bit of a base of understanding of the parameters of the problem. Now, everybody's going to have a different set of unique problems because we're all unique people. Our DNA is different, but except I have an identical twin sister, but the um, actual, you know, types of problems that we have are very similar. How we are going to approach those is not necessarily going to be individualistic. In fact, like Peter's saying, you know, it has to be a social solution to these very large problems. People telling their, their stories and having other people understand who they are and where they're coming from is the first step toward building those relationships. And these are relationships that are going to help us understand what to do. These mammoth problems that we're facing right now, the problems of the pandemic and problems um, that it's creating in, in the economy, and the problems that have always and already been there in the economy, and the problems of, of racism and how the society operates and how we're kept separate from each other, all of those things, they cannot be approached individually. And there can be no individual solutions to any of those problems. It's not how society works. The society doesn't work because it's one person's fault or another person's fault, the way that things are. The society is built on systems of things and, and in order to change a system, you need a whole lot of people coming together. And your question about, you know, statistical approach to problem solving, I think it's a very good question because I think when eventually we build some kind of a movement to have progressive change, it's going to require that every single person contribute what they are particularly good at doing. And, and there, you know, if, if a movement really can come together that can accept and use all different kinds of contributions from all different kinds of people, that's really an unstoppable movement. And what you said there about the power of storytelling being sort of a medium to open us up to maybe how the system works or other people's experiences. 
is that something that you have developed or become more appreciative of because of the fact that you're a filmmaker or is that, is it the other way around? Did you sort of, is that something you have always had, which led you to be a filmmaker? I've always had a love of narrative songs and ballads from when I was a little kid. Uh, but recently this idea about the importance of story was confirmed in my work with a wonderful national group called the Poor People's Campaign. And I have the privilege of working on the communications committee for New York State Poor People's Campaign. Of course, now virtually working long distance on that kind of work. But one of the things that we say in the campaign is that we must change the narrative. We must change this idea of how things are, a false narrative of how things are. But in order to change the narrative, you must also change the narrator. And so you must rise up the voices of people who don't usually get to tell the story of what the world is like. And the more people that we have telling their truths about what the world is like, the more we're able to then change the narrative of what is really going on. And so Mary now is a very strong member of a group called the Raging Grannies. And their MO is they write songs and go to political protests and sing those songs. But since they've been isolated because of the pandemic and unable, you know, older people, very high risk for COVID, and it's no joke and people have to be very careful. Well, so Mary has organized the remote singing and recording for all of the Raging Grannies of their songs. In New York. The New York Metro Raging Grannies. New York Metro Raging Grannies. New Jersey, she, Westchester County, all the way around, yeah. She records them on Zoom and then she gives me the files and we edit them together into short little political song pieces. And we've done how many now? Three or four? Three, this month we did three. We did yeah. three, three, three of them this month. And that way the Raging Grannies can still participate in the political process. They send these songs around to different people and try to influence and raise people morale with them the way they would do if they were actually going out to a demonstration, but now it has to be virtual um, in this virtual realm. So, you know, we, we hear your um, history of activism and your current activism, and we know you marched last week on Block Island, and you're planning on going tonight, depending upon what this weather does, but I, I'm sure you're going to peek at it and, and see if you can get out there tonight. And I'm listening to you here talking about the story that needs to be told and changing the narrator, which I think this Black Lives Matter movement is a perfect example of that, right? This changing the narrator, telling a different story, what's really going on out there um, with racism in our country. And yet I'm, I'm a little stuck on 
what's our goal? You know, what, what do, do we have to have a goal or is this a stage where we just need to raise awareness that we just need to come together? Is this, a, is this, is that part of the process just marching together in solidarity or do we need to have our eyes on something? Um, you know, specifically on Block Island, it's budget season. Should we be digging into the police budget? Should we be looking at that? Should we be looking at the school budget and asking them how much money they're dedicating to their curriculum about racism and deinstitutionalizing their own institutions? Or is that not the process? We might have different opinions on this, but. Um, you and I, or you and Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first. Um, I think the one thing that Peter and I both agree on is that top-down approach does not uh, change things. It's a reformist approach that is not going to actually change um, the systemic uh, racism and systemic poverty and uh, systemic uh, problems of uh, militaristic society and uh, the it's a top-down approach does not seem to be what's going to really change the um, ecological devastation that we're experiencing. So the grassroots approach is much more what we would be in line with. Now, how we approach that um, may be a little bit different. Um, well, Mary spent the morning, at my request, looking up the town budget and, and seeing what percentage of it was, went to the police department. Because nationally, obviously, the, the, the demand that's emerged from this current uprising, I would call it an uprising, mm. is, is defund the police. Correct. And shift money from these huge militarized police forces to social, more socially beneficial activities in the community, whether that's housing or education or food, whatever basic people's needs, shifting it to that. But we looked on the budget of Block Island, and it's not a huge part of Block Island's budget. It's like 8%. Or this looks about less, 8%. Less, less than 8%. And, and you know, I was thinking... And you know, a lot of the proposals are freezing people's salaries, freezing things, not moving them into the, uh, uh, pro the proposals that had been before this, uh, expanding those areas. So, so we are, go ahead, Peter, you can say it. Well, no, no, I mean, I, I, all I wanted to say is that I thought that um, the balance in the Block Island budget looks very interesting and, and very good. Um, and I don't, but I feel like this is the longest period. We came up here in early March, and quite frankly, and honestly, this is the longest period that Mary and I have spent in our, you know, in several decades. Outside of the summertime. You know, here on the island. On this summertime, it, it you know might be two and a half months, and now we've already been here since the beginning of March, but we feel very much like outsiders. It's not our place, I feel, to to say, look, these are the recommendations. Um, what what I think we can bring to it is is an I some idea of of political courage. That, that when nothing happens unless people speak their minds, nothing happens unless there is public debate about that 
happening. And sometimes that public debate has to be supported by something like these current demonstrations that have certainly jarred loose a certain amount of public discussion about things. Um, so I feel like the way forward in terms of Block Island in the, in the current moment is, is one, encouraging, encouraging this notion that people do have the right and ultimately hopefully will have the power to affect control of their own environments they're in, to be able to say, this is what should happen where I live. And it's not just because of what I think, but it's because of the will of this community to do this kind of thing. And, you know, that's, that's where these things don't happen without a certain kind of organization to make them happen. So to my mind, the best thing that can come out of this incredible upheaval of spirit that we see on the streets of America right now is stronger organizations, organized of people at the bottom of society, not organized by the top of society, that are educating themselves and fortifying themselves, making themselves stronger and figuring out together how we can change government policies to more accurately reflect the needs of the communities that we live in. And, and I am sure this island is not the island I grew up on. You know, this, when my sister and I were here growing up, you could walk across the island in a straight line and you would see no, no trespassing signs. And you would just walk and walk. And, and you know, that's not the reality that we live in today. But an examination of how the economy on the island works and how to really have a situation on the island that's more respondent to people's needs and desires as human beings and completely fulfilling them. You really want a place where you have to work, you know, three jobs, you know, from, you know, 20 hours a day all summer long and, and move out of your house. Yeah, you the shuffle. Yeah, move out yeah. of your house in order to rent it out to survive for the winter months. You know, is that, is that the kind of situation that, that, um, that makes, makes sense? Or is there a way to foster a different type of um, economic community on the island? These are all kinds of questions that, that we should be dreaming about and thinking about and imagining. And, and that's a job, you know, for everybody, not for just one or two people. I think that there needs to be a good examination of how these things fit together because clearly the um, ecology is going to be a driving issue on this island, we, you know, and it has been for a long time. The loss of fishing as an industry on the island uh, is just one place that you could start. But the idea that um, the people need to adjust and change with 
the changing circumstances, but also have some control over those circumstances. And I think that that ability, you know, what you had said before, you know, the ability of people to feel more powerful in their own situations and not, not ashamed that, oh, somehow they didn't measure up, you know, they don't have uh, uh, a label on Wall Street. You know, that kind of thinking has uh, got to change that competitive edge issue has to be changed into a cooperative and more collaborative uh, kind of thinking that says we all depend on each other. We all need to uh, be able to um, share what we have and also share sacrifices if necessary. But do that in a more collaborative sense and not some kind of charity, but an idea that this is how we are going to survive in the, in the coming years. That's maybe sounds awful, but it's true. We are, we are approaching a really very dangerous time. And I, I think we have to think about how we're going to handle it. And I know, you know, from Kristen, what you're asking and Allison, what you're saying, you know, and asking is that um, how are we going to go about doing this? Well, that's not going to come from people like Peter and me. That's going to come from the island itself. And from the young people. On and the, the young people on the island. From yeah. the next generation that's, that's coming up that like, like many, many generations would like to be able to make the island their home, would like to be able to have a productive life here, be able to express themselves culturally, artistically, raise their families if that's what they are interested in, in doing. Become tradespeople and have it be a livelihood. Whatever, what, you know? whatever, what, whatever it is, you know, there, there, wouldn't it be wonderful if the island could hold on to its young people and not lose them to the, to, to the rest of America and, and have generations of people who add to the fertilization of the culture of the, of the island? And wouldn't it be wonderful if it wasn't, the island wasn't a one-dimensional economy, totally supported by outside wealthy uh, money. It's, it's, these, these are things that, yes, you might think they're very utopian, but, you know, two weeks ago, no one would have thought you could raise the question of defund the police. That was just not on the table. That was way off in left field. And look, now, yeah. It, it's raised as a national question yeah. with the entire Minneapolis city council. Major cities. Yeah, major Including. cities doing it. Yeah. Yes. So, so it is possible. It's, it's important to begin imagining how things could be. And, and, and also studying, of course, like Mary does, how things are. And that combination of studying how things are and imagining how things could be, out of those possibly could come that path forward. Yeah, even here, we can be creative. You know, even here, where sometimes we operate from what I like to call the scarcity model of sort of this is what we've always done and this is what we think is only, we only think these couple things are possible here. Um, that's usually kind of where we start even here, we can think of, well, what would be optimal for our population, for all sectors of our population, and for um, 
everything that we, we want it to be in the opportunities that we wanted to have for me being a kid who did grow up here and is trying to make a life here. Um, I would, I would rather not be a rare breed. You know, I would like to see it be something that um, Island kids see as a, a viable option and one that makes them feel proud and not like they've done something wrong. And that's why they're still here. That's great, Allison. I think that's wonderful. That's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes we see the island and others view the island as a place to come to, to sort of recharge or recoup energy and think and write and, and imagine and then leave to do the work right? They go back and do their work in their own communities. And I think this is a time for Block Island to realize like there is work here to be done. And as you said, you know, there's, we need to give each other political courage to do that work. One amazing thing for Mary and myself has been that because of the pandemic, we virtually attended a whole bunch of town council meetings yeah. that we had never done before yeah. to our shame. But, you know, now it was like eye-opening, you know, to, to see a little bit of how, how, you know, the same kind of problems that we know of in huge cities and across the country are just replicated, you know, yeah. here in its own little level. So, so, you know, and, and that was a wonderful thing, that democratization of those meetings through the, the Zoom calls and, and seeing them live on Facebook. And, you know, kudos to the Block Island Times for being out in front of, of live streaming those even before the town did it. Um, so th this was, um, this was, I thought that was a great step forward in terms of transparency. Transparency in what happens in government is absolutely critical. And, and things, deals should not be made behind closed doors. And deals should not be made just through, you know, people who have the money to pull the strings. This is one of the things that we can aspire toward is a more real democracy. And one of the things that would help that is absolute transparency in what happens and how decisions are made. Wake Up Well is produced by Dry Brush Studios. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation or offer comments or suggestions, please email us at wakeupwellblockisland at gmail.com. Thanks. <laughs>